It's good to see you. Welcome to our study of Revelation tonight. Glad that you're here. We have made it to the last chapter of Revelation, and we'll do the first seven verses tonight. And then next Wednesday night, we'll start with uh, chapter uh, 22, verse 8. But glad that you're here. Those joining us live by live stream, we welcome you as well. We always have a large number of Wednesday night that are going through a Revelation series with us, literally all over the place, all the United States. And so wherever you are and however you're joining us tonight, we welcome you as well. Revelation 22, 1 through 7 in the ESV. And uh, let's pray and we'll get started. <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you tonight for your love for us and the truth of your word, the truth of scripture that we can study together. God, we thank you for what Revelation teaches us. It's such a powerful book, gives us such a great glimpse into the future. And although we don't know everything we want to know, we, we have everything we need to know. and We're thankful for that. Father, I pray the Holy Spirit will be our teacher again tonight as we look into your word. May your presence be here. I thank you for your people here at First Baptist Garland. Thank you for those who are joining us online as well. May your blessings be upon them also. And we thank you tonight. Looking forward to what you uh, speak to us about. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we get started, wanted to remind you that if you want a copy of all of every one of the lessons... Uh, we have a flash drive that looks like this that we will give you as soon as our Revelation series is over and you can plug it into your computer. Uh, even in newer models of cars, you can put it in uh, to the port there and you can listen whether you're driving or wherever it is. But much better than having about uh, 32 different CDs you're trying to carry around. And some of the newer model of cars don't have the CD players anymore, but they do have these. So it's called a flash drive if you're not familiar with it. Let us know you want one, and every one of the lessons, of all of the Revelation lessons, every one of them will be on this flash drive. So let me know, let Shannon know in the office, and we'll be glad to put you on the list whenever we conclude our series uh, to uh, give you a flash drive of all of the lessons of Revelation. Well, let's look at letter A to begin tonight, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, you remember chapter 20, two chapters ago, the heavens and the earth had passed away. Judgment had come upon those who did not receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. They were cast into the lake of fire uh, that's burning with sulfur to be removed from the presence of God forever and ever. But God in His graciousness gave us two more chapters all about heaven, all about our eternal destiny. Those of you who know Jesus as Savior tonight, we're learning about our eternal destiny for the final 48 verses. Tells us all about heaven. Chapter 21, John saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first one had, uh, had passed away, as the Bible talked about, and so God is, is creating a new heaven and a new earth. And so it's kind of like, if you want to visualize it like this, you say, what's the difference between new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem and tonight's throne, throne of God? The, the best way, I think, to, to, to think of it is imagine that starting in chapter 21 with the new heavens and the new earth, we're taking a, a, a large view, I guess you might say. God's creating new heavens, new earth, and then the, and then the new Jerusalem, it's like you zoom in to the new, new, new earth, and there is a city upon the new earth called the New Jerusalem. And then tonight, if you zoom in a little bit further into the New Jerusalem, the city, to the town square, that's what tonight is, the throne of God. 
the town square of the new city. So new heavens and new earth, kind of the larger picture. And then upon this new earth will be a city called the New Jerusalem. And then within the city will be the very center of the new city will be tonight's lesson on the throne of God where uh, God actually resides and lives. So I hope that helps a little bit because sometimes new heavens, new earth, heaven, new Jerusalem, city, it all gets confusing. And so, uh, the, so the big picture, the new heavens and the new earth. Look at letter B on your outline. Let's talk about the new Jerusalem, kind of review from there. What we've seen so far about the city. An angel in chapter 21, verses 9 through 14 an angel took John to a high mountain to view the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that is upon the new earth. And he described it as a radiant glow like a diamond. Twelve tower gates with angelic guards. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel, one on three on each of the four corners. The twelve apostles, three on each of the four corners of the gates. A foundation of the city, which meant permanence, which would mean a lot to a nomadic Jew. Um, and the, the, then, then they measured, the angel measured the city, and we saw that it was 12,000 stadia in each direction, 1,400 miles in every direction, even up. And then he measured the walls, and the walls was 72 inches, inches two, 72 yards three-quarters of a football field, just the length, uh, the uh, width, rather, of, of the, the walls. Now, I've been asked two or three times since, uh, since the last session, why does the new city need walls? When you think of walls, it's usually to keep somebody out or to keep somebody in, right? So why would you need walls? And, and we're not given as to why most Bible commentators believe that it's probably just symbolic that God has always been the security and the provision and the protection for his people because there, there's nothing evil that will be coming into it. It's not to keep anybody out. It's not to keep anybody in because it's heaven. And so most likely the walls are symbolic for most of the commentators of what Bible commentators, what they believe, a symbol around the new city that God has always been the protection and the provision of his people. We also saw last week that the foundation of the new city uh, made of 12 precious gems, the most massive, the most beautiful, and then even names the 12 that are there. Within this new city, we saw also last week that there was no temple there, uh, there's no sun, there's no moon because it's not needed because the brightness of God in His glory will illumine constantly the new city. Now, this appears to be what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14, verse 2. If you remember, he was headed to the cross, turned to the disciples and said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you so that where I am, there you can be with me. Most Bible scholars believe this new Jerusalem is what he was talking about. Now some believe he's talking about the cross, maybe. But it sounds more like he's talking about this new Jerusalem. This is the place he said he's going to prepare for you. Come back and get you 
and take you to live in this city with him. Now, here's something interesting. Up until now, this city has been described as how glorious the city is. Starting in chapter 22, tonight, we're going to see the city is described as how much of a delight it's going to be to you. It's a difference, isn't it? First of all, we're told how glorious and beautiful the city is going to be. Now we're told how delightful it's going to be for you when you get there and for me whenever I get there. So starting in chapter 22, it's what you get to enjoy not just how beautiful the city is. Now, in this last chapter, there are woven through here five themes. The river of the water of life. The tree of life. We'll talk about that in a moment. God and the Lamb on their throne. Believers worshiping and having authority to rule. What does that look like? We'll talk about that. Number five, all evil and evil fruits will be gone. So five of these themes woven together we're going to talk about and we're going to look at. So go to letter C on your outline. Let's look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, the river of life. So now zoom in with me. The big, the big new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Zoom in further to the town square, the city square of Jerusalem. Verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now let's stop there for a moment. Let's kind of recalibrate where we are. We are now at the throne room of God. We're at the town square of the city, the main street. And it looks like and sounds like, if you can picture in your mind, you are behind the throne of God, looking from the throne of God down main street of heaven. So that's the first picture we're going to get. Picture, you're, you're behind the throne of God. God and the Lamb are on their throne and looking over their shoulder down main street of the city appears to be what we're looking at starting chapter 1. Notice that it's a time of new beginnings. Sharp contrast to Revelation 20 and the very ending of, the, of where people are not saved, they're thrown in the lake of fire. That is no new beginnings. And now we have a place where everything is made new. And listen to what it sounds like. It sounds like Genesis chapter 3 and the Garden of Eden restored. Think about it. What was lost? First of all, how does the Bible open with a garden and no sin in God's presence? And how does the Bible end? A garden. And a tree of life. And God's presence and God's people fellowshipping with him with no sin anywhere. And so the Bible begins and ends with a garden. 
and no sin and a tree of life. And so it sounds like the Garden of Eden has been restored again. So heaven is described as the Garden of Eden destroyed. Now, say another quick word before we actually get to verse 1. Um, are all the things we're about to talk about tonight, are they, are they literal or are they symbolic? And that's the question that theologians have kicked around for a long time. Obviously, you cannot describe another dimension without using symbols connected to your present reality. Think about it. Imagine you're John. And you look into heaven and you're seeing everything into a new dimension, but you're trying to communicate that to the present reality. Seven churches. How do you put it into words? That was his task. So, obviously, you're going to have to use some things that we know here to understand what's going on there. So, is everything symbolic? No. Some things are literal. Remember our first night of studying Revelation. You remember one of our hermeneutical principles, principles of interpretation. If a passage can be taken literally, take it literally. So there's no need, I don't think, to look at Revelation 22 and say, oh, it's all symbolic. It doesn't have to be symbolic. It can be a literal tree of life. And it can be a literal river. And it can be a literal throne. And it can be every bit as real as you are sitting right where you're sitting. So that's what we're going to look at. Verse 1, the angel showed me. So it's the same angel that showed him the new city. Now takes him into a closer look. He showed me the river of the water of life. So as he looked closer into the town square, he saw a river of water. Now what I find interesting is the present Jerusalem has no river. There's no river runs through Jerusalem. You've been there, many of you have. There's the Kidron Valley, Kidron Brook. It's far from a river. It's dry most of the time. When they get a flash flood, it fills up with water and flows and then dries up again. It's not really a river. So there's not even a river in the, new, in the, in the now Jerusalem. But in the new Jerusalem, there is a massive river. And all the way through the Old Testament, a river was a powerful expression of richness and provision and peace. Peace like a river. Ezekiel 47 talks about a river, and Isaiah 48 talks about a river, and Zechariah 14 talks about a river, and Jeremiah 2 and 17 talk about rivers, and Proverbs 10, 13, 14, 16 all talk about rivers, and Psalm 36 talks about a river, and Psalm 46 says, there is a river that makes glad the city of God. Sounds like a river flows right down the middle of Main Street. And water, of course... Precious, still is. Do you have to have your water turned out for a while? You see how precious it is. You go to parts of the world that don't have clean drinking water, you see how precious water is. And so water is the metaphor that would be meaningful to nomadic Israelis through a semi-arid 
desert area as God's people. Water, rivers, that's heaven. It's a way of saying that there will be no want for anything you need. Now I want you to notice something. Notice up to now we have been describing heaven in chapter 21 and uh, it's all described as minerals or gems or jewels. Everything hard, nothing soft, nothing like grass or trees or vegetation. In fact, up until now, heaven sounds like a jewelry store. Doesn't really sound like home. Do you feel at home in Jared's or Zales or a jewelry store? No, you're, you don't want to break anything. You're afraid you have to pay for it. So, so far, heaven has been described as dazzling displays of gems and crystals. But who lives in jewelry stores? Who can call that a home and look forward to it? So now, chapter 22, there appears green grass to sit on. Green trees to enjoy and water to drink and food to eat. Yet in these verses now we are introduced to elements of softness that add to the elaborate beauty of the hardness of the jewels. Now, now you get a sense of home. So I saw the river of the water of life bright or rather clear as crystal. I've never seen truly unpolluted water. You can go to the mountains and you get pretty close maybe. Depends on how far back you go. But truly unpolluted water? Shimmering? Sparkling? Beautiful. Think about this. In the very heart of this golden diamond-shaped city is this enormous throne of the living and glorious God, just as literal and real as Jesus' resurrected body was. And flowing out of the middle of it is a gushing like Niagara Falls from the throne, uh, the headwaters of a glorious river flowing along the lanes of the central Grand Boulevard. Surrounded by the most beautiful gardens ever designed, filled with trees of life. Some of you remember Robert Morgan that came and preached here for us. We read his book as a church, and then he came and preached here at the end of last year. Robert Morgan's wife, Katrina, passed away. Of course, you remember the book was about her, her illness and her subsequent passing. Right before she died, one of the last conversations Robert and Katrina had Robert said he wanted to make a date with her that they would get to stroll the river and they would get to walk along this beautiful river that flows from the throne of God and they read this passage and he said is it a date she said it's a date He said, I can't wait. Think of this. The beauty and the glory 
and the fellowships and the relationships God has designed for his people. So you never really lose somebody when they're a believer. You'll have a date again someday. Then he goes on. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice God the Father and Jesus the Son are connected. Notice Jesus and God are the same. It's their throne. It doesn't say the throne of God. It says the throne of God and the Lamb. They're one and the same. Verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Let's stop at verse 2. We'll spend more time in the first few verses and less time on the last couple of verses. So let's look at these a little more carefully. Notice he says, on either side of the river there are, there's the tree of life. Now, if you're trying to picture it, good luck. It's hard to picture it. So is it a large street and down the middle of the street's a huge river? Or is it a large river or a large street with a river on each side of it? Or is it like in Holland and places in Italy, it's, the streets are water, canals? Or is it a large tree of life that expands over? It's a massive tree that expands over the river. That's what John Woolward says. We don't know. Spurgeon says it's a series of trees that line the river, maybe. It's just hard to picture. A large street with a river running down the middle of it. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around that. But he calls it the tree of life. Where have we heard the tree of life before? Garden of Eden in Genesis. Now we hear the tree of life again. Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life and they lost it. Now we've regained access to the tree of life. It's a restoration of all things lost. We're going to get to enjoy the Garden of Eden again. It's a restoration. Remember as John is writing to the church of Ephesus, go all the way back to Revelation 2. I know that was weeks ago. But you go back to Revelation 2 and he's writing to the church of Ephesus. You remember what he said, chapter 2, verse 7? He said, and to those of you who overcome, God will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Christians would be able to eat from the tree of life. Remember last time they took a fruit and ate of it and the sin came. This time we get to take a bite of it and it's eternal. Twelve kinds of fruit. There's the number twelve again. Tree surrounded by water is expected to have luscious fruit. A tree with 12 kinds of fruit. Wait a minute. Does that mean we're going to get to eat in heaven? 
Sure sounds like it, doesn't it? If you think about it, Jesus, after the resurrection, in his glorified body, ate. He ate with the two on the road to Emmaus. He, the, he cooked breakfast and ate fish along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He ate in his glorified body. We're going to have a body like his. And if you remember in Genesis 18, an angel and Abraham sat down and ate together. So angels eat. And this consummation of the marriage of the bride and, the, the, and, and Christ, you and I as believers of the Christ, is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Sure sounds like we get to eat. Baptists are going to love that, aren't we? Casseroles. Interesting that what we fell by, we now get to eat the fruit. But notice something else. This phrase kind of is interesting. In verse 2, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Month. Are we going to have calendars in heaven? Somebody said, oh, no. <laughs> month. Will there be time in heaven? Or will time be destroyed when the old heaven and the old earth are gone? Well, Greek philosophers, and Origen too, by the way, said there will not be time in heaven. Time goes whenever the heaven and earth pass away. There will be no more time in heaven. And some Christians believe that. And most Eastern religions believe that. But we're never told that. The Bible never teaches heaven is a timeless experience. I always pictured it that way as a boy. My image of heaven, whenever I was a boy, was, well, it's a place you go and you're there forever. And you don't need a clock because you're there forever. And you don't need a calendar because, well, you're there forever and time's gone. And so it kind of makes you, kind of makes you miss heaven and miss, miss earth because at least here you had time references. But it never tells us time's gone. It tells us that every month the fruit comes out. Now, right now, you have a fruit tree. It doesn't bear every month. It bears once a year usually, maybe twice a year. Not every month. No, you don't go out every month, you got fresh fruit on it. But here you do. Every month. So there appears to be both time and space in eternity. Eternity is not some timelessness or the absence of time. It appears to be the extension of time where you know all of time, past, present, future, perfectly. I can't comprehend that. And whatever our calendars look like in heaven, it won't be a lunar calendar like we have now. There's no moon. So there appears to be another type of calendar in heaven that will define months. Because right now our month is determined by the moon. But not there. But it calls it a month. So we don't know. And then it says at the end of two, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
Weren't the nations done away with when the old heaven and earth passed away? Guess not. We have nations on this new earth. And why would healing be needed? It's heaven. Why would there need to be the healing of the nations when you're perfectly in heaven? I think the word that's used there for healing gives us a clue. It's the word therapine. We get the word therapeutic from it or therapy from it. And it doesn't necessarily mean healing as we know something is, is wrong and needs to be healed. It literally means health giving. So there appears to be a tree there that we eat from that gives us continual good health all the time, constantly. And we'll have it from now on. Go to verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. No longer will there be anything cursed. Let's think about that for a moment because it's glorious. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, we have lived under the curse. The earth is cursed. Sorrow and pain in childbirth for women, arduous work and futility, friction between the sexes, all a part of the curse. But now, the curse is gone. The curse that has marred creation is nowhere to be found because everything is made new. The curse is gone. I'm not sure there's a more beautiful phrase in all of chapter 22 than that one phrase, there will no longer be anything cursed. Folks, you don't know what it's like to have anything, to be in a place that's uncursed. All you've ever known is this earth. That's all I've ever known. But it's cursed. What did the earth look like before it's cursed? I don't know. I I don't know. But we're going to find out. We're going to a place curse is gone and all those things you get tired your body wears out your body gets older all because of the curse and you're going to a place that doesn't happen because the curse is gone and his servants will worship him now is this one long worship service as we know it no the worship there, the wording is, is unique. We don't know what that's going to look like. Uh, I used to picture as a boy growing up, heaven, and I said, oh, we're going to worship constantly. I'm going, oh, that's one long worship service. Whoo, that doesn't sound like heaven to me. <laughs> but it's not as we know it here. It's, it's worship in a sense of intimate fellowship with God in its purest form. And we will serve him, it says. His servants will worship him. The word literally means serve. What does it look like to serve God in heaven? I don't know. What does it look like to serve God on earth? Well, I do things for people. Help them. I preach. We, we teach. We go on mission trips. We, that's how we serve here. What does it mean serving in heaven? 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I do know that this arduous, curse-stained service we have now is gone. But the word that's used there implies priestly service. What does that look like? We don't know. John's just telling us what he saw. Verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, verse 5. They will, not need, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's look at those two verses. They will see his face, in verse 4. In Scripture, you, you've heard this, I know. Nobody could ever see God's face and live. They just knew that. Moses wanted to see God. You got to see the hind portion, remember? Exodus 33, verses 20 to 23. But we're going to be able to see physically God face to face and not only be able to look at him face to face, to have the ability that it doesn't kill us instantly. So we will be able to see him face to face with enlarged and adapted characteristics where we can handle it. Right now, we know something of his face, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. But then we will know perfectly, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 12. So you'll get to look upon the face of God. Nobody on earth has ever done that. And the language speaks of enjoying personal, intimate fellowship with God. Think about this. Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, they loved that fellowship with God. They bit into the fruit, forbidden fruit, and they ran and hid from God. They didn't want to be around Him. But now we'll hide no longer. We'll come out and have Him face to face, and His name will be on our foreheads. This is the third time we're told in Revelation chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 14, His name will be on our foreheads. It implies ownership, and it implies identification. We're His. Same with the mark of the beast. Identifying with the beast and being committed to Him. But we're identified with Christ. And verse 5 tells us all the night will be no more symbol of darkness, symbol of evil. All the darkness is on, gone. God will be our light because God is light. But notice the last phrase of verse 5. I find it interesting. And they will reign, you and me, will reign forever and ever. Who are we reigning over? In order to reign, you have to have somebody reigning over. Who? What does he mean by that? Forever and ever. So here's my question. A lot of Bible scholars have posed as well. Will faithful believers on earth have more authority to reign in heaven more so than unfaithful Christians? Matthew 25, a parable, verses 14 to 30, seems to hint at that. And Luke 19, verses 11 to 27, seems to hint at that. That faithful believers here will earn the right to reign in the millennial kingdom, but also in heaven. 
over other Christians, not in an oppressive way. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe says. Quote, our faithfulness on earth prepares us for a higher service in heaven. Wow. I'm looking at some of the most faithful servants of God here at First Baptist Church. You might be the ones reigning. Listen to what J. Vernon McGee says. Maybe each faithful Christian will have a world or a solar system or a galactic system to operate. After all, he says, Adam had dominion over a whole earth. Maybe so. What does it mean? We will reign forever and ever. Well, let's go to letter D on your outline. In the last portion, Jesus is coming soon, verses 6 and 7. Kind of left us a lot more questions than it answers, didn't it? Verse 6. John said, and he said to me, who's he? God. Jesus. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So in these concluding verses tonight, verses 6 and 7, and actually going through the next, next Wednesday night too, we have a lot of parting words from a lot of different people. It's not always easy to tell who's speaking, by the way. I just want to warn you about that <laughs> the, rest, uh, the rest of tonight and, and next Wednesday night. It appears here God's speaking, and he said these words are trustworthy and true. That's the second time he's told us that, folks. If God tells you something, now, if he ever says, now that's, this is true, and he says it twice, it's true. Book of Revelation, it's true. Skeptics out there, many skeptics out there, it's true. You don't, believe, you don't have to believe it. It doesn't make it untrue. These words of Revelation are true. Dr. Thomas says, no book in the Bible is attested to as much, safeguarded against tampering as much, or is more urgent to study and observe than the book of Revelation. Because twice God tells us, these words I'm telling you are true and trustworthy. And then he said, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent this angel to show them to you. Prophecy gives us a word to keep. John was seeing a prophecy revealed. And then notice the last verse, verse 7, we'll close. He says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I am coming soon. Now we're going to see next Wednesday night, this is the first of three times in the last chapter, Jesus tells us, I am coming soon. Most of American culture does not believe, according to surveys, that it is a possibility for Jesus to come back to earth a second time. Most of, of Americans do not believe that. Three times Jesus told us in the last chapter of the Bible, I'm coming soon. He's coming. 
whether you believe it or not, he's coming. Now, here's the word that has us kind of bumfuzzled. Soon. This was written in 90 AD. It's 2022. He's not back. It's been 2,000 years. The early church expected a soon return of Jesus. That's what part of Thessalonians was about. They were afraid, since believers had died, that whenever Jesus came back, because it's going to happen any minute, they would not get to go to heaven. So, what does he mean by soon? Well, could be that as you look at time, one day is as a thousand years as the Lord, and one, and it, so it could be his soon is still two thousand years, possible. But here may be a better explanation. The word soon that is used there is the word tachy in Greek, T-A-C-H-Y. We get the word tachometer from it. It means sudden. It means quickly. So now let's read that again. Behold, I am coming quickly, suddenly. What did Jesus say? He's coming suddenly. What did Paul say? He's coming like a thief in the night, suddenly. So it appears rather than soon being time, it's manner. He's coming quickly. When he comes, it'll happen fast. So it, some of your translations may say that, but call it come quickly. Mine says, behold, I'm coming soon. But look at the last phrase, verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the second time, first time was in chapter 1, verse 3. This is the second time Revelation tells us you are blessed if you read it and keep it. You're blessed. And we have for 27 weeks now. And hopefully we have been blessed. But notice he doesn't say you're blessed if you sit around and discuss it. If you sit around and debate all the theories of millennialism. If you sit around and debate all the time, rapture versus second coming. He didn't say if you sit around and talk about it and debate it all the time. He said if you keep the words of the book. So if you do it, I think some believers think they're blessed if they sit around and talk about it all the time. He says you're blessed if you keep the words of the book, if you do these words. Isn't it ironic that people ignore this book so much? But it's the book that tells us straight out, if you read it, you're blessed. If you keep it, you're blessed. I've had a lot of people say, Pastor, I just, whoa, a revelation. I just ignore, I stay away from it. I'm scared of it. I just don't read it. You're missing a blessing because it tells you itself. If you read it and keep it, you are a blessed people. And I'm so thankful that God has given us this book that I can go with with it uh, over it with you for 27 weeks here on Wednesday nights thankful for a beautiful city God has given us that whenever we die we go there to inhabit with him your loved ones are there waiting on you that have known the Lord and what a glorious reunion and day that's going to be praise God for the beautiful city of the new Jerusalem we'll talk more about it next Wednesday night
if you have questions or comments, feel free to send those to me. Send me afterwards. I'm always happy to, to visit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for revelation, what it means to us. And dear God, may we be some of those people who are blessed by keeping the words of the prophecy of this book. And may we even keep them this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you on Sunday.